Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Turn with me to the book of First Samuel, if you have your Bible with you. We're looking at First Samuel 25 as we continue in this wonderful series on the book of Samuel. Very interesting Old Testament history leading up to the coming of Christ, of course, and pointing ahead to Christ with God raising up his anointed king, David. And we're going to read chapter 25 in parts. Um, I'm going to read uh, three different parts as we go through the sermon. But we have before us this wonderful passage about David and Abigail. The book of 1 Samuel is teaching us how God is establishing his kingdom on earth. And we note as we study through this book that all human instruments in this great cause of God are weak and imperfect. We looked at Eli, who was a priest, and then we saw how Samuel was raised up, and eventually Saul was anointed and made king. All of them had failings, and now with David, the anointed king, coming closer to the throne, he has failings as well. There was only one servant of the Lord who could be trusted with the kingdom of God, and he understood that kingdom glory came from enduring the hostility of sinful man like Nabal against him. David at first did not understand that. We think of Hebrews 12 verse 3 where we're exhorted, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And we also see a primary theme from this text, how the Lord, in his timely providence, restrains his chosen king from his own impulsive sin and folly. And he uses the beautiful picture of Abigail to do this. And four times we'll see as we read the text, we hear repeated how God has acted to restrain David's sin. The four points, or the three points that we want to look at are the foolishness of Nabal and the vengeance of David. We're going to read that first, verses 1 to 13. Then we're going to look at the centerpiece of the chapter where we'll spend the most time on the wisdom of Abigail. And then we'll look at the outcome that God has brought about and consider some words of application as our final point. So let me read the text. This is under our first heading, The Foolishness of Nabal and the Vengeance of David, verses 1 through 13. Hear God's word. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, 
and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said, said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be on your house. And peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited, and Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Here we are with the scene set in the deep south of the tribe of Judah. This is south of Hebron, which is itself south of Jerusalem. We're in the area west of the Dead Sea, near Engedi, if you know anything about the geography of the area there. It wouldn't have been that far from the area that would later become the fortress of Masada that became famous in later Jewish history. This wilderness area was where David and his men were hiding out from King Saul and his army. And again and again, they had close calls of almost being caught and David almost being killed by Saul. But it was a wilderness area that was what we might say was a semi-desert area which was used primarily for grazing sheep and goats and things like that rather than farming. It was a good place for hiding out from King Saul but not an easy place to find food for 600 armed men. And the first thing we find when the scene is set here is that we have Nabal described for us before we are even given his name in verses 2 and the beginning of verse 3. We read that here is this man who is very rich. That's the emphasis. He has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it was the time of the shearing of sheep, which was a typical festival time. It would be natural. It was a tradition to give and receive gifts especially the rich landowner who owned all of this would be giving gifts of food and so forth. And then in verse 3, we read that the name of the man was Nabal. And you probably know that that name means fool. Of course, it 
probably wasn't his given name that his mother and father gave him. Maybe it was some form of a nickname or that he was known by that name. We're not sure. But he stood in great contrast to his wife, Abigail. Everything that Nabal was not, Abigail was. We see that in verse 3. The name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. And we learn also that it says here at the end, he was a Calebite. Caleb, of course, was an associate of Joshua. They're the two spies that brought back the good report about the land. And it was a great part of your heritage to be your heritage to be a Calebite, to be descended from Caleb. And it is almost as if the narrator puts this fact in here to say that Nabal was far removed from his heritage in the type of man that he was. Nabal was the biblical definition of a fool. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. And there are many other Proverbs which talk about what a fool is like. But the fact that he is described first by his wealth before we are told his name gives the implied point that Nabal's life and heart are ruled by his possessions. Nabal lives to hoard and cherish and defend all that is his in great contrast to his wife. And the scene here is that David and his men have been hiding out from King Saul in the vicinity of Nabal's area. And they have been, the text says, a wall of protection against thieves, against bandits. And they have been careful not to take any of Nabal's sheep or goats or any of his possessions. And even Nabal's own herdsmen declare this. As we'll see, David was right to expect the traditional courtesy of being sent some gifts of food by Nabal at this festival time. And so he sends 10 of his young men to give the traditional greeting and courtesies, and David bends over backwards to be very respectful. In fact, it's interesting that in verse 8, He even calls himself uh, your son, David, similar to how he spoke of himself in the chapter before when he encountered Saul, and he called himself his son. But instead of sending any gifts, our text tells us that Nabal deeply insults David and speaks of him as if he is just a renegade, a thief, a servant, uh, and if he's uh, way out of his league in terms of asking Nabal for anything. And so the men, these young men of David, return to him with this news, with this reply, and they give it to David word for word. And verse 13 is an interesting verse because we see the fury rise up in David's heart. Every man strap on his sword. And then we read, every man strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. I think the narrator wants us to get the idea that swords are out three times. We read about it. There is no consideration. There is no calmness. There is just seeing red. What a contrast to David's response 
in the chapter that has just preceded this, when the Lord delivers Saul, King Saul, into the cave where David and his men are hiding. And in that story, in that narration, we find that David's men rejoice and say, let us kill him, let us kill Saul. And David is the restrainer. He says, no, we cannot strike the Lord's anointed. We cannot take vengeance into our hands. But here the tables are reversed. And David is the one who needs to be restrained. We'll see that it's Abigail who serves as the Lord's instrument to restrain David's vengeance. We tend to look at the story at this point, at the end of verse 13, with 400 armed men about to descend on Nabal and his household. And we tend to think, oh boy, Nabal has a problem. But the truth is, now David has a big problem. That's the reality. He is impulsively following the path of vengeance. The folly of Nabal and the vengeance of David. It's a familiar story, isn't it? And we could all say that we don't have swords to strap on, but we all know something of what it is like to have an occasion of temptation when we feel insulted or slighted and suddenly we're acting with vengeance, at least in our hearts and in our minds. Well, this brings us to the centerpiece of chapter 25, verses 14 to 31. Let us read these. We're going to have the account of this servant who talks to Abigail and then Abigail's very famous speech when she intercepts David. Verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good." God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. 
Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of all your enemies shall he sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and he has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Quite an encounter, isn't it? We see first in verses 14 through 17 this brief story of this unnamed servant who comes to Abigail. I just love these little vignettes we have in Scripture that show the providence of God. This young man is really the first instrument of God in his restraining of David's sin. And this young servant comes to Abigail and tells her what's happening. It reminds me of the story in 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman the Syrian, the general from Syria, and the, the, the servant girl of his wife, who is used by God to tell Naaman that there is a God in Israel and Naaman can be healed of his leprosy if he would just go there. That servant girl reminds me of this servant in this case, or maybe in Acts 23, when Paul's nephew alerts Paul to the plot of the Jews to kill him on the road. The servant tells Abigail of his concerns, and immediately Abigail makes a decision and assembles a donkey caravan of all these foods and so forth, and sends the caravan of food and gifts first, reminds us of Jacob, ready to encounter his hostile brother Esau, sending the gifts first, and then Abigail comes along behind herself and sets off to meet David with the goal of saving David from the folly of vengeance, and as we hear described, this lasting burden and shame and guilt of having blood guilt on his character and his heart. He was in danger of becoming like King Saul. We read earlier and saw earlier when King Saul killed the priests of the Lord at the little town of Nob. And now here, 
Carmel was about to become another knob if David would carry through with his plan. And clearly, as we read her speech and read David's response, which we'll see soon, clearly Abigail interprets her intervention as guided by God to rescue David from this rash course of action. When we teach the Peacemaker book in Sunday school at our church here, which is by Ken Sandy, who's both uh, a trained theologian and a lawyer as well, one chapter of that book about peacemaking principles is an extended exposition of Abigail's speech in 1 Samuel 25. But the tension of the story is heightened by the narrator as we come and follow Abigail to meet him. The narrator puts, right when she's about to meet him, the narrator puts a previous statement by David that he probably made to his men when he told them to strap on the sword in verses 21 and 22. As she's about to meet him and his men are coming down toward her, we find, and David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me evil for good. Again, the irony is very strong here because in chapter 24, right before this, we read in the conversation between David and King Saul that Saul has said, David, you have returned me good for evil. And now David is falling into that same trap. And he vows, God, do so to the enemies of David and much more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. David is aiming to kill all of the men in Nabal's extended household. Well, Abigail entreats David. And we want to look at that under a number of points here. The first is Abigail approaches David with humility and respect. Verses 23 and 24. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. And she pleads with him that she might speak. Throughout this encounter, Abigail is deeply respectful of David. By my count, she uses the word Lord, small l, 13 times in referring to him. There is not a hint of pride or arrogance in Abigail's demeanor. And remember, she would have been like the Downton Abbey lady of the household of the whole area, the one that would have been used to being highly respected by everyone. She's the one who falls on her face before David and speaks highly respectful to him. We might ask, how does she do that? Was it just put on for show? And clearly that was not the case. And we all know that you can't really fake humility for very long. She was able to be humble because it's evident that she had been already humbled before her God. She was clearly a woman of strong faith in the Lord. And as we will see, as her speech unfolds, she knew David would become the future king, the anointed one of God, and she was humbling herself before 
the future anointed king of God. And for us, we can make the immediate application that true humility before others only comes out of true humility before God through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, in verse 25, we see the second characteristic of Abigail's speech. She honestly and realistically faces the situation. Look at that verse. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. She accurately tells David what the problem is. My husband is a fool, and I did not, I had no awareness that you had sent men. She wasn't excusing herself. We'll see that she begs forgiveness eventually, but at this point, she does not gloss over the affront that her husband has caused, and she calls his actions for what they were, folly. She faces the substance of the issue head on. She's very direct. And then in verse 26, she puts her request before David in a winsome way. Just love the way she does this. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, notice that Abigail begins her request by speaking an oath before the Lord. As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, She's going to request that David not take vengeance into his own hands. And she begins by this oath, which would automatically remind David of the Lord. And in the face of his hot anger and impulsiveness, it's as if David had forgotten momentarily the Lord and the Lord's ways. And Abigail is saying, the Lord lives, and David's soul lives. In other words, Abigail is putting her request in the context of God's sovereign, providential protection of David, his anointed king, whom he has protected again and again. And then she puts out her actual request. And it's interesting how she frames her request. Her request is, David, do not take vengeance. But she doesn't say it that way. Look how she says it in the second half of verse 25, excuse me, 26. Because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. It's interesting, she explains the purpose of her mission as in the past tense, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and let your enemies be as Nabal. That implies God will take care of any vengeance that needs to be carried out. The Lord will do this. Her actual request is almost prophetic in the way it's spoken. It's like she has certainty that God is going to hear her and restrain David's hand. And then in verses 27 and 28, we see a fourth characteristic of her speech. She asks forgiveness and, in a sense, provides restitution for her husband's sin. Notice the gift is described first in verse 27. And now let this present that your 
servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. That's what David had intended in the first place in sending the ten men. She is providing what the original intent of his message was. And then verse 28 is her plea for forgiveness. It's an interesting verse. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. She asks forgiveness. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. Interesting, isn't it? She has already made clear that she had no knowledge whatsoever of her husband's foolish reply. But that does not make her innocent in this case, for there is a real sense that even though she had no personal guilt or culpability or involvement here, she was bound to her husband, and as his wife, she shared, in some sense, in the ultimate responsibility for his foolish actions. We see in the Old Testament many times that when a man, the head of the household, sins, his whole family is judged because of it. There are some startling examples of that. And Abigail was wise and humble enough to admit that unity of husband and wife, even though she knew nothing about it, and on that basis directly plead for forgiveness from David. Of course, you can imagine the impact that this entreaty would have had. I just try to imagine the scene of David and his 400 men having come down from the hills around her, like you can kind of think of an Apache Indian attack in the olden days, and surrounding her, and Abigail falling on her face before David and these 400 men standing around looking perplexed at what's happening here, and out of her mouth comes this eloquent entreaty, so wise, so godly. And David is stopped cold. What is he going to say? No, give me my sword, guys. You know, I'll start with her. I think not. Of course, she wasn't a male, so I guess she wasn't going to be killed in the first place. How could David not be moved by this godly petition? How could he not be shaken out of his impetuous rage by this spiritually-minded woman? But there was a final piece to Abigail's speech in verses 29 and 30. I began to read it to you, where Abigail speaks words of encouragement to David. She asks for forgiveness, and then in verses 29 and 30, she says, If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of of the Lord your God. What a beautiful description of God's care for David's life. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. That would have been familiar to David, right? That's what she says God's going to do to his enemies. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince, and that means really king, over Israel, My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. What an interesting prophecy, really. At least a semi-prophetic statement declaring that God would certainly keep 
David alive and raise him up to be king. We don't know exactly how much Abigail knew about David being secretly anointed king by Samuel, which takes place at the beginning, nearer to the beginning of the book, and being the promised by God, the promised king uh, by Samuel being declared that. By now we know that the people of Israel love David. And we've also already heard by the mouth of Jonathan that David would be king. And in chapter 24, we actually hear at the end of that encounter that even King Saul himself says to David, I know that you will be king. Everyone is knowing that David's going to be king. But Abigail, you see, not only wisely challenges and restrains David from his impulsive action, she also encourages him to trust in God for the fulfillment of God's purposes for him. And certainly, we realize that David needed to hear this promise, along with Abigail's humble request and warning. David needed to hear this promise stated again, prophetically, by this woman. And really, some of it is very similar to 2 Samuel 7, when Nathan finally prophesies that God will establish David's house. The first time we hear that is Abigail says that. You can't help but believe she's being used by God in this sense. Think about David's life up to this point since he was anointed king. There was a glory moment in 1 Samuel 17 when he killed Goliath. That's the way life ought to be, right? Just from victory to victory. But then if you count the number of times that David had had a close call with death by the hand of Saul and his men. In chapters 18 to 23, if I count right, there are 12 times David is near death. It's pretty serious. I don't know how many near-death experiences that you have had. I had one semi-experience that I got heat exhaustion in the July 4th run, but good thing the EMTs were right there and Patty had me take them to the hospital, them take me to the hospital and start to pump fluids into me. That was good because I couldn't even talk at that point. Um, But even then I could think, and I didn't think I was going to die. David has been hounded relentlessly and pressured with danger. And even with all of these providential deliverances by God, we would have to say that these experiences must have been having a cumulative effect in his life. And by the time we get to chapter 27, verse 1, David says in his heart at that point, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. And then he goes off in disobedience to God and lives among the Philistines for a time. What an effect that would have been. David needed the encouragement of Abigail's words. Abigail's prophetic word of encouragement to David is a call for David to continue to put his trust in the Lord. If David was to eventually reign as the king chosen by God, then he must not be the one who needlessly sheds blood or takes vengeance into his own hands. David must be a man who trusts in God. David must be, in the words of 1 Peter 4.19, one who entrusts his life to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. And Abigail concludes her speech by asking David to remember her. What a beautiful example 
of wise exhortation and confrontation mixed with genuine and humble apology and all wrapped up in faith in God's promises. Well, we move to our third point, the epilogue to the story, the outcome that God brought about in verses 32 to 34. And we'll be brief as we conclude here. Follow me as I read the ending of the text. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was very merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Well, the outcome that God brought about was clearly that God restrained David's folly. Four times in the chapter we hear that refrain, one on Abigail's lips, but three times from David himself in verse 33, in verse 34, in verse 39. David repeats it, and the author, the narrator, repeats it for our sake The Lord has used you to restrain me from deep folly. Thanks be to God for his providence in David's life. I would like us to consider three brief applications to what we've seen. The first is this. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Satan attacked David with this strong temptation to sin, the sin of vengeance. Note this in the very arena which seemed to be David's strength. In chapter 24, David does not take vengeance on Saul. In chapter 26, he doesn't take vengeance on Saul at another opportunity, but right in between them, David almost falls. Twelve times Saul had tried to kill him, but David had never responded in time. But here, with a mere insult from Nabal, David is ready to sin against the Lord. The lesson for us should be that we need Jesus every day to show us our hearts and to keep us from sin. 
And we need the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ and the encouragement of others to help us more and more to daily put sin to death and to live unto Christ. We may not be tempted to literally and physically take someone's life. I hope not. But we may be certainly tempted to kill them with our thoughts and with our words and in our hearts. And so let us learn to recognize this sinful spirit of revenge as soon as it crops up in our hearts and let us take it to the cross. And thanks be to God for his restraining hand in our lives through the Holy Spirit. But secondly, let us seek to follow the example of Abigail in her spiritually minded peacemaking. I'm so thankful for a wife who is an Abigail and who graciously and wisely will tell me the truth and speak wise counsel to me. I'm thankful for Christian brothers in the Lord who are willing to speak counsel to me and speak the truth in love. We all need Abigail-like friends and relationships where we can encourage and exhort one another in love. That's one of the great blessings of the body of Christ. And if you are unconnected to the body of Christ, maybe you need to join a Bible study or seek to find a prayer partner to connect more to someone who can speak God's truth to you in a spirit of love. But finally, the last application is we must realize that the humility and wisdom of an Abigail comes only by being humbled through the gospel. I mentioned this er earlier. The wisdom of God only springs from the foolishness of the cross. It's only as we live daily, glorying not in our great gifts or our great knowledge or our great success, but glorying only in the cross of Jesus Christ, it's only then that we grow in true humility as we look not at ourselves, but as Jesus our Lord. Really, humility is a very elusive thing. If you try to be humble, we know that that's not going to work. You can try to be humble, but if you're not truly humbled before God, you can't just put it on. Humility comes only by being awed by the holiness of God and receiving God's grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, thank you for this word, for this wonderful picture and example for us. Oh Lord, let it stir us in our relationships, in our own lives, in keeping a short account with you, in not letting the impulsive desire to strike back at someone grow in our hearts and be a root of bitterness. Lord, we ask that you would keep us, keep our hearts soft, that we might glorify you in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.